Uniting Nations. My name is Huri Gedelekian. I am the chair of NGO Committee on the Status of Women, and I have been the chair for almost four years now and involved with this global organization for the last 12 years. I also represent a small nonprofit ECOSOC accredited called Unchained at Last, who advocates for ending early marriage in the United States. Our main mandate is actually to bring global women's and girls' voices into the Commission on the Status of Women. And the Commission on the Status of Women is one of the commissions of, of the UN that deals with gender equality, obviously. And they meet once a year for two weeks. It's one of the largest and longest, you know, it's like for two weeks, all they do is talk about gender equality. So it's a great opportunity for global activists to come and present their work and influence policy globally to achieve gender equality. Now, not everybody has access to UN. Not everybody can afford to come to New York and spend two weeks or even a few days to influence. So over the years, the job of NGO Committee on the Status of Women has gotten bigger and bigger because more people want to be involved and they can't. So we figured out ways of including their voices. So we have monthly meetings, we have advocacy committees, we have all kinds of plans in place to make sure that anybody who wants to be involved can be involved, either they're ECOSOC accredited or not. So that's like a whole other thing about who gets to have a voice at the United Nations. Usually for civil society, you have to be part of an ECOSOC accredited organization, but with NGO Committee on Status of Women, you don't have to be. Any activist, any advocate can join our committee, can be part of our forum and speak up their truth. I learned very recently how long the UN Commission of the Status of Women has been around. You know, it's basically been around from the inception of the UN pretty much. So if you were to explain what this UN Commission is to somebody who may not know about the UN system, how would you explain that? You know, what's their mandate, what they do? Uh, and then also, could you tell us about what happened this year at the Commission uh, last month? Sure. The Commission on the Status of Women was established soon after UN was established, and it does fall under the ECOSOC Commission. And they meet once a year, as I said, and they do engage in whatever is necessary. The topics really vary from so many different aspects of delivering gender equality globally. Now, in 1995, this, of course, has been going on for years. In 1995, the decade of women started and ended with the fourth Women's World Conference in Beijing. That conference was a pivotal point to actually advance the movement in a way that was unexpected. And that Beijing delivered goals for us to achieve. So every year that the commission meets, we pick a topic based on that platform, the promises made by member states, so that we can help achieve the gender equality that we want. 
Um, so this year's commission, the priority theme was for the first time ever, something really new called innovation and technological change and education in the digital age for achieving gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls. Now, this is literally the full title that the commission used, and you can see how complicated UN language can be. In short, it's about tech and women, <laughs> but they just like to complicate things. And that's a perfect segue to say that as amazing as it is that we have these two weeks every year that everyone gathers, including 193 states, to speak about advancing women's empowerment, yet it, they make it so much more complicated than it is, right? And this year was no exception. Although I have to say in the 12 years that I have been involved, it was one of our more successful years. We were able to get progressive language in there, not as much as we would have wanted, because as you can imagine at UN, not everybody thinks the same way. There are definitely member states that push back but we're very happy that this kind of opportunity keeps presenting itself to try to move the needle for human rights being served for women and girls globally. It sounds like the work has transformed you too, personally. Absolutely. It really was a very personal journey more than a career journey. It ended up being a career journey because I'm still in it. Besides wearing the chair hat, I also do all kinds of other things. I'm involved with Generation Equality Forum. I do fundraising. I do other events that are consulting with other organizations, but it's all interconnected, right? It's all about advancing gender equality. And my passion is peace and demilitarization and making sure that all the work that we're doing is not going to waste. Because I feel like as long as there's weapons and there's wars and within the United States, even though we don't have a war here, but we have a gun issue that's killing people even more than some wars, if you think about it. To me, that is just so heartbreaking because it makes no difference how much we improve human rights and gender equality if we can wipe it out with one bomb. So that to me is really important. And I'm trying to figure out how we can bring that balance, how we can bring those silos of just doing plain old human rights, gender equality work, and how can we influence governments to really scale back? I mean, that's what UN, UN was built for, right? I mean, UN came out of the Second World War with the idea of never again. Well, guess what? I don't have to tell you. It's happening again and again and again. Maybe not a world war. I hope not. I hope never. But even a small war anywhere in this world, the domino effect of what it does to human rights, gender equality, climate justice, all of that is reversed. So we must, must work for peace at all times. And it's so easy to be in our silos, especially at the UN, but we can't also forget that the feminists are a big part of the peace movement and Absolutely. they have such passion. Absolutely. So thank you for making that connection 
And uh, you spoke about how you were empowered when you walked into the, you know, the UN building and the meeting. But, uh, you know, in your 12 years, how effective has the UN been in advancing gender equality, especially like, you know, you mentioned how not everybody thinks the same. And I feel gender equality and women's empowerment can be a very contentious issue for some countries, right? Absolutely. I wish I could say we were so effective that we can all be out of work soon, <laughs> out of, um, you know, we can look for maybe knitting <laughs> or bicycling only and not having to do this work. The, the, the sad part is that I've, and I've said this so many times and I'm not the only one who says it, the head of UN Women now, Sima Baha says the same thing. It is sad that every time we go forward one step, we're, it feels like we're going back two steps. In your perspective, how do you think nonviolence can make a difference in the UN and you know, especially in its mandate for empowering women? Well, I mean, it's obviously pretty clear, but I'd like to put it into words if possible that violence is at the core of gender-based violence, right? And although women can be just as violent and destructive, both physically, emotionally, and verbally, which I'll get into a little bit later as well, because I, I have a very strong opinion on how we women need to do a lot of healing ourselves, to be kind to each other, to build each other up, to fight the opposition more strongly. The truth is, most of the major violence, including war, building of weapons, is a man's world. This is not pegging women against men and men against women. It's our reality. And it really is fascinating to me to think on why that happens. And a lot of times we talk about a mother's responsibility sometimes, or a family's responsibility on stopping the cycle, raising boys who are feminists and respectful of peace and women. And we can say that, but a lot of times we don't have influence across the globe. You know, there's always going to be people who, for whatever reason, keep choosing violence over peace. Yet, I know for a fact, we cannot give up on that one. And I think that's why I want to go back to saying is that one of the most disappointing emotional heartbreaks for me has come from peers, colleagues, or members of my own community who kept choosing violent discourse, just language. I'm not talking about weapons and war here, but words that was demeaning and insulting. And instead of empowering, literally taking the other powers back with language was just disappointing. To me, that is more exhausting. Yet again, we cannot give up on saying, well, you know, let's just let them go. I feel like for my own committee, for example, we wanna keep creating a safe space, a peaceful space, that even if you're angry, come and sit with us and let's see how we can come to an agreement that your approach of violence, both emotionally and verbally, is not going to advance our cause. 
it's like bringing patriarchy into our own circles. We're already dealing with patriarchy. Let's deal with them as outside of our circles. Don't bring it into our circles. And then let's together, hopefully, enlarge our circles by bringing in those men who, for whatever reason, are choosing violent means. And again, this is not going to be easy. It's not going to be overnight. We're not going to be able to change Putin or Erdogan or Aliyev or any of those leaders who are choosing violence over peace. Yet we must take responsibility, just like Malala and Greta, one person at a time to change the discourse. And I think for some people, that's a harder work. It's so easy to talk about changing government behavior or this human rights violation outside, but to take ownership and to take responsibility and reflect on, well, how am I delivering the work? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you think we can change that? I have to say, I think there is hope. I do remember another, you just reminded me of a moment. I don't even remember which year it was. It was definitely gender-based violence conversation. And we had brought in women who, who have been violated. We had brought them in for testimonies. And there were women there who were raped during war. There were women there who had been raped, women who had been abused by their family. So all kinds of women who were testifying in front of the governments. And I thought it was one of the most powerful moments when men were sitting and listening to what other men had done to these women. And I remember at one point, a story that one of the women said triggered, I think it was South African ambassador and he got emotional. He took, he took the mic and he started talking, he said, I can't listen anymore. This is really heartbreaking. And you reminded me of my, whoever it was, his daughter or his niece or, and I thought this, this is why UN is important because these people are sitting around and shuffling papers back and forth and agreements and arguing over words when they really need to hear the humanity story behind them, right? And I thought, yeah, it's we have to keep doing that. We have to keep. And of course, that has made it harder for us to bring testimonies into the UN. They don't want to hear it. They'd rather just keep their <laughs> blinders on and just keep shuffling papers. But we must not give up on that one. We really must not give up because I have seen changes happening. Very small increments, but still happening. Mm -hmm.